with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Some of you, um, before we begin, remember what I said last week, that, that I can see everything from up here. And I called a couple people out last week, and some of them actually said, I've never been more attentive since you called me out last week. So I think they were, they were fearful that I was going to do it again. Um, having found Matthew chapter 5, pray with me. Father, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Father, you are what our heart yearns for who are in Christ. Father, we pray that as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, that you would convict us of our sin, and that you would then show us Christ. And that we would weep over our sin, that we would mourn and then rejoice. Because we know that we have been redeemed, we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. And we've been adopted as your children. Father, help us to see these truths and to live by them. We pray all these things in the strong name of Christ, who is our only hope. Amen. Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. We're not going to finish Matthew. Actually, we're not even going to finish the Beatitudes today. You know, I'm sorry, we're only going to get to a couple of them. But here are all of them in their context. Starting in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we get into the Beatitudes, the first thing I want to review just quickly what the Gospel of Matthew was about. Now, there's four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one has a different, a different emphasis. And last week we talked about how Matthew was primarily written to a Jewish audience. These people understood the Old Testament, they were familiar with the Old Testament prophecies, they were familiar with the Old Testament law, and Matthew was writing to these people primarily. And so as you read Matthew, you'll notice that it uses the Old Testament more than all the other Gospels, because he's writing to an audience that is informed. And he's writing to this audience of Jews and people who understand the Jewish culture to say, the kingdom of heaven, which you are expecting, has come in a different form. He's saying, you were looking for a guy to come and be king and, and overcome Rome. You were looking for someone to come and overcome the tyranny of our oppression. That's what you were looking for, and what you got was Jesus. He's saying, you're looking for the kingdom of God, but if you're looking for it in the way that you were looking for it, then you're going to miss it because it's right here. It's right here in the person and work of Christ. And if you miss it, you won't be able to inherit it. You won't be called sons of God, regardless of your national heritage. Matthew is writing, and he writes five discourses. There's five main sections of teaching within Matthew, coupled around different healings. The teaching is to talk about the wisdom and the glory of God and what he says, the healings are to explain his glory in what he does. So as we come to the Beatitudes, we have to keep that in mind, that Matthew is writing to a people who think that the kingdom of God is still coming, and yet they've missed it. So as we come into the Beatitudes, 
Christ, on the Sermon on the Mount, says the very same thing. Because he says this. He says, you think that the kingdom of God looks like this, but it doesn't. He says it looks like this. And those people who are truly blessed, those people who are divine recipients of God's love and favor, are not those who are bold and courageous, but rather, he lists these attributes out. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. People are going, what are you talking about, poor in spirit and mourning? We want somebody who's going to be victorious, who will reign forever. We're looking for someone to come and overcome our enemies today. And what Christ says is that those who are part of this kingdom, as well as myself, will exhibit these characteristics. The Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are sweet because they characterize what you and I should become. They are a list of attributes or qualities that you and I should have if we belong to the kingdom of God. If we believe that Christ is our Savior and Lord, then we will exhibit these attributes within our life. Not one or two or three of them, but all of them. And what's amazing about them is that they actually sort of come in an order. And last week we talked about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It means an emptying of oneself. It doesn't have anything to do with rich riches. It doesn't matter what house you live in or what kind of car you drive or what kind of cave you live in or what kind of rags you wear. It's not talking about that, but what it's talking about, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who empty themselves of all of their pride and arrogance and their good deeds and their false deeds. It says, blessed are those who empty themselves and have a right understanding of who they are against a holy God. Because if you understand that, that is the first step in coming to know Christ. Because if you don't need to be saved from anything, you don't need a Savior. And when you come to Christ... When you come to Christ, you understand your need for him because you understand that you're a sinner. And maybe you understand that you have a little sin that you need to be saved from. And from a little sin, you sort of need a little savior. And as we mourn, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we mourn over our own sin, not for someone that we've lost, as we begin to mourn over the sin within our lives, we begin to understand who we are really. As we look back into the recesses of our heart, we begin to realize that our sin is really ugly. That it is far more depraved than we had ever imagined. And as we begin to mourn over our own sin, we have a view into our hearts that is startling. And we become grieved and we mourn over that. But the good news is that those who mourn will be comforted because as you begin to mourn over your own sin, then the glory of the cross becomes more beautiful. We see it much bigger. If we have little sins, we need a little savior. But if we have huge sins, if we understand the full extent of our own sinfulness, then the cross becomes that much bigger. Think about it in in terms of a bridge. If you have a a small ditch that you need to get across, you just need a little bridge. But if you need a huge bridge to span the Grand Canyon, it's going to be a big bridge. And, And so your view of Christ and what he's done for you on the cross is linked to your own view of sin, to your understanding of that. And so as we are poor in spirit, as we've emptied ourselves of all that we have and come before God and have a right understanding of who we are as we stand before a holy God, as we mourn over the sin that is within us, as we begin to mourn over the sin that is around us, it makes us meek. Because here's what it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now meekness, the the word that comes up when when people hear meekness is oftentimes weakness, because it sounds the same, but it's not true. Meekness implies humility. It implies gentleness but it does not imply weakness. Like when I think of, um, think, think of this, like when you're back in the nursery, you ever seen these big, burly guys who are construction guys? 
and you hand them a new baby? I mean, what do they do? They just kind of cave in on themselves. They're sort of like, sort of, you know, they're like, how do you hold it? You know, I don't know quite what to do with it. I mean, that's sort of the model of meekness. You have these, these men who are powerful, these, these people who are strong, and yet they're gentle. When you hold a new baby, you hold it. I mean, you, you basically just envelop it within your arms. When we, when we think about meekness, we need to think about gentleness. The other aspect of meekness that we need to think about is this. Meekness is a controlled desire to see, to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. And here's what I mean by that. It means that within the family, you're more concerned about other people than you are yourself. And the reason you're more concerned about other people than yourself is because you understand what it means to be poor in spirit and you understand what it is to mourn over sin. Because if you have a proper understanding of who you are in Christ as you stand before a holy God, then you realize that you really aren't that significant. And as you begin to realize that you're not really that significant, although you are loved, then you can be meek because you're not so much worried about your own position. You're not so much worried about being defended. As poor in spirit relates to our relationship with God, so meekness relates to our relationship with God and our relationship with others. As we look at meekness or gentleness or humility, it's putting others' interests above our own in a spirit of gentleness because we realize that we're not all that, quite frankly. Let's look at a couple of examples of meekness in Scripture. The first of which is in Genesis. Turn over in Genesis with me, Genesis chapter 13. This is the story of Abraham and Lot. Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in that land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, when I, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Look at Abram here. Abram says, hey, we're having conflict in the family. But you know what? It can't support us. You decide where we want to go. If you want to go here, I'll go here. And if you want to go here, I'll go there. Because Abram says it's, it's not that important. Okay? The, the second example is in Numbers. Turn with me to Numbers 12. As we look at the life of Moses. This is the one that's really hard. Because Miriam and Aaron are related to Moses. I mean, they're his real family. And listen to this. Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. 
And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. The striking thing about this story, getting kind of warm, although I think most of you are cold. The striking thing about this is that Moses is related to them. These are Moses' inmost circle. This is his innermost circle. And yet these people are throwing his, his life back into his face. Much like what happens when we're around other believers. And yet Moses does not respond. We don't know how he responds, but it says this, that Moses, uh, in verse 3, now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth, meaning he was gentle and humble and worried more about other people than he was about himself because he had known himself in light of a holy God. And the amazing thing about meekness is that it occurs within believers. Kelly Liebengood, who's one of our missionaries in Costa Rica, is a good friend of mine. And he was saying to me that the the number one reason why missionaries fail out in the field is not because of language skills, it's not because they're homesick, it's not because the people don't respond to the gospel. The number one reason why teams of missionaries fail in the field is because they don't get along with one another. There's not humility among the team. They They get there and they have good intentions and they're really excited. And what happens is these little things begin to come up. They begin to get people upset and frustrated, and all of a sudden the team chemistry just falls apart, and the the team goes home. Or different individuals of the team go home in separate directions. That should not be what happens within the body of believers. You know, one of the major reasons that the church has strife is because meekness is not exhibited within the lives of believers. Well, personally, one of the greatest issues of strife within my own household is because I'm not exhibiting meekness when, I work, when I'm interacting with my wife or with my children in a spirit of gentleness and humility, thinking more about their own needs than I am about my own. And again, how does this happen? How do we look at this? Again, this happens when we're poor in spirit. Look at the Beatitudes because they, there's an order. Now, some people just think the Beatitudes are thrown in there for no apparent reason, but the Beatitudes have a certain order. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because you have to have a, a correct understanding of who you are. You have to empty yourself, because until you empty yourself and realize that you don't have anything to offer, then and only then can you be saved. And then you inherit the kingdom. Then you mourn over your sin. Well, if you have emptied yourself, if you are mourning over your sin, then it's going to make you gentle. It's going to make you gentle rather than arrogant going to make you humble rather than prideful that's what happens now the greatest example that we have of gentleness and compassion and meekness in scripture is is christ and so let's look at just a couple of places in this where where, where i love it let's look um in matthew 19 turn with me to matthew 19 this is the nursery in the bible matthew 19 verse 13 I mean, Christ is approachable here. In, in verse 13, it says this, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
and he laid his hands on them and went away. You know, look at the gentleness of Christ there. He calls little children to himself to lay hands on them and pray for them. The other example of Christ's gentleness is found in Luke 7. Turn with me to Luke 7. In the midst of an amazing miracle, we see the gentleness and the meekness of Christ displayed in his power. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. And and look more at what Christ does uh, in terms of interacting with the widow here. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the basket, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, that's an amazing miracle. Christ comes, and he raises the dead. But what's really, what I, when I look at this, what I want to bring to light is this. That this is really about the widow. Yes, it displays the majesty and the power of Christ. It displays his deity, but it also displays his compassion. Because what happens? He sees this funeral procession coming. He's walking with his disciples, and he sees this funeral procession, and he stops because he sees this woman who's a widow, and this is her only son. He looks at her. He takes time to look at her. He has compassion on her, and then he goes and acts. And what was the last thing he did in this? If you look at this, after he raises the son, he does something significant, which brings us back to the widow. This is what he does. Um, Young man, I say to you, arise in verse 14. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And then this, and Jesus gave him to his mother. I mean, in a sense, Jesus gave this woman back her life. This is the gentleness of Christ. This is the compassion of Christ. This is the meekness of Christ. And all these qualities, like I said before, these qualities in the Beatitudes that we see, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, they are all to be exhibited by you and I if we claim that Christ is our Savior and Lord. Now, we will display them imperfectly until we are in heaven, but they are all characteristics, they are all attributes of what you and I should manifest in our life. And yet it's very difficult. Now, having seen this, having seen that we're poor in spirit, having seen that we mourn over our sin, having seen that we're meek and we're gentle, having seen all those things of people who know Christ, then what happens is when you, when you are those three things and you are in, in this world of ours, which is sinful, you get tired of it. And you begin to hunger and thirst for something more. And if you've been called by God, you enter into this thing called sanctification. And this is a great picture of sanctification. And here it is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I'm going to talk about this verse by using a series of questions. What does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? What does it mean? It means that one supreme desire in life is to know God and to be in fellowship with him. To walk with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the light. It is the longing to, to, to cast off the world and to embrace Christ. If you look in Ecclesiastes, you will see that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes had more wealth, more power, more wisdom than all other people on the earth. And yet after building the buildings which would stand for hundreds and maybe thousands of years, after reading 
tons of books. After having all the pleasures at his disposal, he writes all this as as, as if chasing after the wind. Meaningless, meaningless. If you are a believer in Christ, and you are a part of his kingdom, then the things of the world no longer hold the same allure as they used to. If we believe in Christ, that he's our Lord and Savior, then the things of God are dear to us, and the things of the world we're casting off. Now, the other way to look at this is is this. Pursuing righteousness means becoming like Christ. Becoming like Christ in his obedience. Becoming like Christ in his compassion. Becoming like Christ in the way that he treated others. Becoming like Christ in his persecution. That's what it means. I mean, um, Christ is often, or in a few places, spoken of as our elder brother in Scripture. Um, I have uh, Benjamin and Hannah. And Benjamin and Hannah, um, are, uh, Benjamin's four, just turned four. Hannah's two and a half. And then we have Olivia, but she doesn't count because she doesn't talk yet. So I don't really know what's going on in her head yet. Um, but Benjamin and Hannah like do stuff together all the time. They just love doing stuff together. And one of the things that they do together that is really funny is Benjamin goes, I want to brush my teeth. And so I'm like, sure, that's great. You want to brush your teeth, you know? Dr. Hex back there nodding his head. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, but he wants to brush his teeth, so Hannah says, I want to brush my teeth. And so, you know, they put toothbrush on the toothpaste, and they start going up and down. And as Benjamin goes up and down, Hannah goes up and down. As Benjamin goes over to the water and spits, Hannah goes over to the front of the cabinet, because she's not tall enough, and spits on the cabinet. <laughs> you know? As Benjamin goes outside to ride his bike, Hannah goes outside to ride her bike. I mean, anything that Benjamin does, whether it's, you know, jumping on the slide, doing anything, Hannah wants to do. She longs to be like her older brother. She loves it. I mean, if you are an older brother, you realize that you had a little brother that was annoying. You know, or if you're a little brother, you know that you had an older brother that you used to look up to. And you wanted to be like. In the same way that if we are in the kingdom of God, Christ is our elder brother. And we should want to emulate him in all of his glory and all of his weakness. We should look to Christ as the example Oh, he is much more than just an example. He is our Savior and Lord, but in terms of pursuing righteousness, he is a great example. Because I don't want to, I don't want to be misunderstood here because some people would say, some people who don't believe that Christ is, is the Messiah or Savior and Lord would say he's just a great example. Well, I'm telling you, he is, but he's much more than that. But for what we're talking about here, he is the perfect example of what we are pursuing. Now, as we think about that, think about this. What does it mean to hunger and thirst? What does it mean to dearly love somebody else? I want, I want to put this in, um, I'm not going to embarrass the, the couple that are here. But, uh, oh yeah, I am. It's, it's um, when, last Sunday when we came back from Camp Barnabas, this was really sweet. And, and I use this as a positive example. They should not be given grief over this. If they're, if they're given grief over this, um, the Lord have vengeance on you or something like that, okay? You know, but this is a positive example of a, uh, ben Shear and, and Jen Yoder. You know, they're sitting over there. They're really embarrassed now. But um, Jen got here. The Camp Barnabas bus was coming back. And as soon as the bus was, who was the first person out, out the door? Jen was to meet the bus. Who was the first person off the bus? Ben was. Our relationship to Christ should be the same. That as soon as we see him, as soon as we see, we, we hunger and thirst so much to be near him that we cannot help but be close to him. It's like two people who love each other that want to be drawn together. That is what our relationship with Christ should be like. Now, as we look into that, think about this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. It does not say, blessed are those... Let me me turn back to Matthew. If you're not there, turn with me. Matthew chapter 5. 
It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It doesn't say this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness, for they shall be satisfied. It doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness, for they shall be satisfied. It says that if you are a believer in Christ, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So my question to you and the question that I have to ask myself is this. What am I pursuing? Am I pursuing Christ? Am I pursuing something that's sinful, that I know is sinful? Am I pursuing the other things? Think about this. And and, and one of the best ways I know that you can look at what you are pursuing is is do a time log of what your day looks like. And look at all the free time you have and and see where you spend your free time. Because where you spend your free time is often where your heart is sometimes. How much time do we spend reading books? How much time do we spend watching TV or on the Internet or computer games or how much time do we spend daydreaming just out there and the question that that arises when i think about these things and these things are convicting for myself why do we hunger and thirst for distractions why do we hunger and thirst for distractions or pleasure now paul answers this in romans chapter 7 turn with me to romans chapter 7 Romans chapter 7 and verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The problem is, is that we're at war. Is that if you are part of Christ's kingdom right now, you are still in the world. The penalty for sin is gone. The power of sin has been overcome, and yet the presence of sin remains, and now we have to make choices. The more, it's, it's actually a far more dangerous place to think that you are not engaged in a war than to acknowledge the fact that we are in a war. Because you and I know this. When we want to do something, we don't really want to do it. We do the things we don't want to do. I mean, we're just in conflict. I mean, if you are a Christian here, you are living in conflict with yourself. Because in one sense, you want to do what God wants you to do. And in another sense, you really want to do what the world says to do. It's horrible. And yet it is a war for our souls. Oftentimes, um, in, in, in the ancient past, monks would actually go out into the desert, live in caves, wearing rags, eating water and bread, thinking that they could escape sin. The problem was that the sin is within them. And the sin is within you and I. That even though we are redeemed and rescued from our sin, sin is still present within us. That's what Paul says. Paul says there's two things going on in my body, in my mind. I'm warring against sin. I want to do this, but I do this. How do I deal with that? And then he says, thanks be to Christ. Because the really cool thing about this beatitude is this. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, it's interesting that there, there's, there's some dissonance here because there's an active part that we play. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, meaning that we pursue Christ with all that we have, and yet the passive part is that we will be filled. If you pursue Christ with all that you are, Christ promises to fulfill you to fill you up. 
Now, the question that I have for you is, what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to run to Christ and to be in the midst of places and people where you're going to be filled? Like, let, let, me, um, let me use this illustration. Turn with me to Mark 10. There's a story of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Blind Bartimaeus in, in uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now the cool thing is this. Could blind Bartimaeus heal his eyes? Could he get rid of his blindness by himself? He knew that he had to go to Christ. And even after people said, be quiet, Bartimaeus, he said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. He knew that if he pursued Christ, that Christ could give him back his sight. Now, in the same way, you and I are like blind Bartimaeus. We are pursuing Christ with all that we are, knowing that we cannot fix our spiritual blindness, that we cannot fill us up that the world cannot fill us up, and that we must run to Christ to be filled up, to receive our sight, in a sense, because we can't do it on our own. And so we pursue Christ with all that we have. We don't hold back anything. We just run as fast as we can towards Him. But there are things in our life that um, impede our appetite. Have you guys ever heard the saying, or your mom has probably told you this countless times, don't eat that snack, it'll spoil your appetite. You guys ever heard that? I used to hear it all the time. I used to like, I still hear it. Even I sneak cookies every once in a while, you know. I'm an adult, but I still feel like I'm stealing cookies right before I eat dinner. Um, but here's the deal. There are things in our life which spoil our appetite. And in 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul says this. Let me turn there. You don't have to turn there. I just want you to, I just want you to hear it because he says it twice here in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and also in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And in 1023, he says the same thing. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, here's what I mean by that. We have freedom in Christ. We can do a variety of things. And yet, because of our freedom, we're allowed to do a whole lot. And yet, just because we're able to do a whole lot does not mean everything is beneficial to us. Here's a case in point. This is my own life. This is sad because it's just true. On Saturdays in the fall, I really enjoy watching college football. Yeah, Paul Kemp back there nodding his head. Yeah, I like college football too. Now, is there anything sinful in watching college football? Paul doesn't know whether to shake his head or not. He's, he's kind of wondering. Is there anything innately sinful in watching college football? No. But just because it's permissible does not mean that it's beneficial. Because for me, as I'm watching college football, often the things I need to think about are, have I spent time in God's Word today? Have I prayed? Have I spent time with my kids? Have I spent time with my wife? Look at all these things. Look at all these things. Just because something is lawful does not mean that it is beneficial to us. 
Just because we're able to do it and it's not sinful does not mean that it's beneficial to us. Some people love to work out. Some people, like my wife, when they get on the treadmill, can pray. When I get on the treadmill, I am figuring out how much longer I have to stay on this athletic purgatory before I am allowed to get off. I am calculating how many donuts I had in the morning and how much longer I have to be on the treadmill to run these off. You know, that's what I'm calculating. And sometimes I calculate and it's like three hours. I can't do that. You know, i got to do something else. But the, the fact is that just because it's beneficial, and, and it is beneficial to work out, doesn't mean, or just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's beneficial for you. Because some people make an idol of it. Some people get so consumed with working out or college football or, or whatever you might be consumed with that it begins to impede our pursuit of righteousness. Think about this within your own life. What impedes you pursuing Christ? And again, one of the best ways to do this is sit down and decide, what do you spend your day doing? What do you spend your day talking about? What consumes your life? Because all those things that consume your life that are apart from Christ, that are apart from the church, are empty. You and I will be completely dissatisfied with this world. We'll be completely dissatisfied with this world if we are no longer of this world. If you and I have been redeemed, been bought with a price that Christ has offered, then you and I are not of this world, and the things of this world will not satisfy us. Think about this. When you were, when someone who's 9 or 10, and it's Christmas, think about this. When you're 9 or 10 in Christmas, what was the one thing you really wanted? When I was 9 or 10, I remember the one thing I really wanted was a new bike. And this new bike, when I saw it, it was great. Because, you, you know, you come out, and all of a sudden you see this new bike standing out there, and you're so excited, and this bike gives you more joy than anything else in your life. And you jump on this bike, and even though it's wintertime, you want to go outside and ride in the snow. It doesn't matter. I, actually, I grew up in Virginia Beach, so it never snowed. So we, so we go out, and we ride around, and it's just, it's, you know, ecstasy. It's like, this is incredible. And then, let's just fast forward our lives for about three years. That same bike is collecting rust somewhere in my garage. I've tossed it aside. But the thing is, and, and we look at them, we're like, well, of course, children toss toys aside. But it's not just a bike. Because the next thing you want when you turn 16 is a car. You're like, man, if I can just have a car. Then maybe you want a nicer car. You know? And then you want to go to college and get a good job, and you get a job, and maybe you want another job. And then you, you get this job, and you want a spouse, and you get a spouse, and then you want a house. I feel like Dr. Seuss. You know, <laughs> you get a spouse, you get a house, and... Maybe you get a mouse in the house. No, I'm just kidding, with your spouse. But then, then you want you know, a bigger house, and then you want kids, and then you want more kids, and finally you, then you want to like, save for retirement so you can retire at this big island down in Florida with this yacht and all this other stuff, and you, and you just keep wanting more and more and more. And yet none of that stuff satisfies you. It only satisfies you for a little bit. But the promise of Scripture is this, that if you are bought with a price, that if you are Christ, and if you pursue righteousness, He will fill you. You will be satisfied. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because you're most satisfied when you're consumed with Him. You know, we are most dissatisfied when we are consumed with ourselves. When you become consumed with yourselves, everything just falls apart. It seems as if this would be the most beneficial thing in the world for you, to be consumed with yourself. But Scripture tells us otherwise. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who pursue Christ, who pursue holiness. Now, I've also heard it said, and, and I, this, this is what somebody should have told me when I was in college, or maybe even college in, in part, first part of seminary, was somebody would say, you know, have you had a quiet time today? 
No, I haven't acted quiet time today. Why not? I just don't feel like it. My motives are all wrong. And so, but, but for some reason, I thought maybe my motives would get better if I was watching college football. That's foolishness. You know, if, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, have you had a quiet time today? And you go, no. And you're like, why not? Well, my motives are wrong. Well, I got news for you. Your motives have never been pure. There's never been a time in your life when your motives have been pure. Your motives will not be pure until you reach glory. And so one way to check your motives and to have better motives is to read your Bible. And as you come to people and you hear people talk about discipline, someone will say, well, you're just a legalist. It's like, no, I'm trying to be faithful. Don't mix these up because legalism is this. In the true sense of the word, legalism is this, is when you begin to say salvation is by faith plus something else. But to be disciplined and to read your Bible daily and to pray and come to church and go to Bible study and those disciplines within your life, that's not legalism. That's faithfulness. Paul wants that. I mean, Paul calls people to that. He doesn't want legalists in the sense of people adding to their faith, but he does want people who are disciplined. He wants people who are obedient. He wants a faithfulness from people. And the truth is that if you are faithful, if you are disciplined, then you will be satisfied. Isn't that cool? That if you're faithful and obedient, you'll be satisfied. If you're not, you'll be dissatisfied. And yet the world has everything backwards. So say, I'm going to, that's about as far as we can go today because I don't want to go over and be labeled Bill Vogler. Um, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Before we read that, let, let me go over the promises again. If you are a Christian, these are the attributes that you should possess. Poor in spirit. You should mourn. You should be meek. You should hunger and thirst for righteousness. You should be merciful. You should be pure in heart. You should be peacemakers. And you will be persecuted because of righteousness. And you look at that list, and that list is daunting. And it is difficult. And yet it's the list that Christ gives us to call us Christians. If you're a Christian, each one of these attributes should manifest themselves in you. But look at the promises. Look at the promises on the other side. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be filled. You will be shown mercy. You will see God. You will be called sons of God. And you will receive the kingdom of heaven. The promises are such a blessing. And we can't miss the promises. I love the song we sang right before we came up here. You know, we will dance. It's such a celebration. Think about this. C.S. Lewis, I just finished reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and at the very end of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, he says, you know, this world is really just the end of the title page of the rest of our lives. If you think about your life here on earth, it's just the title page. Everything else has yet to be written. As we look at these attributes, I want, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And this is what it says. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him elsewhere, everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Here's what that means. It means is, if you're hearing these things about the Beatitudes and what I'm talking about, 
if you see these things that Scripture talks about and they smell like a skunk to you, then you are not Christ's. But if you read these things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for you will be filled, and it brings joy to your soul, then it is the fragrance of life. It is the sweetest smell you will ever smell. And it is the only way that we can be satisfied. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we know what your word says. And the principles are not difficult to understand, and yet they are impossible to live. But thanks be to Christ that he is our substitution. Father, you call us to holiness, and we recognize the fact that we are unholy. Father, change our hearts. Father, what are we pursuing? What do we love? What do we spend our time doing? Father, I pray that all of us would ask that question to ourselves daily, every day. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would remain in fellowship with one another, helping each other, encouraging one another. Father, help us. Help us to be poor in spirit. Help us to mourn over our sin. Father, give us a gentleness and humility of spirit, considering others better than ourselves. And Father, may we pursue you with all that we are and run as hard and as fast towards you as we can. Father, help us with that. Father, that is our desire. Father, if there are those here who do not know you, then what we are saying is the smell of death. It smells as if death is around them and they don't understand. But Lord, if you are, if people here are Christ, then what we are saying is beautiful and encouraging and it is the fragrance of life. Father, I pray that we would, um, we would love your word and that we would drink deeply of it every day. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The benediction today, the, the response is, Praise be to God. Amen. So hear this is God's benediction. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Praise be to God. Amen.